Hebrews chapter 2. We'll begin reading this morning in verse number 10, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 2, 10, the Bible says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to be called to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing of your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he help, it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Uh, this week is a continuation of last week's message as we looked at the fact that Jesus Christ is fitting uh, is more fitting or is a better fit, uh, not just in relation to our salvation, but Jesus Christ is a better fit in relation to everything that we face in life. Um, whatever uh, situation we're going through, whatever stress we're going through, whatever physical ailment we're going through, Jesus Christ is always the answer. Uh, it, it is always to him that we should go. And the direct, the direct correlation or the direct contrast in this passage of Scripture is made with Jesus Christ being better than the angels. And the angels in the Scriptures are, are representations of two things. The representations of the law, as they were ministers or um, declarers in the Old Testament of the law. They brought forth the law. And then religion as well. And uh, two things that, um, and, not, and not religion in a pure sense of James 1, but religion in a sense of religiosity or, or religious things. Uh, it's easy to run to legalism, uh, to things that you can control, to things that you can do when you're in a difficult situation or a difficult circumstance, isn't it? It's easy to flee to those things and say, well, I, I did this, Lord, and I'm doing this, Lord, and, I'm, and, and, and you almost begin to hold God captive to the things that you're doing. You put God in this box that says, because I'm doing these things, you must do this. It's easy to run to those things, to those legalisms. It's easy to run to religiosity as well, to things that are fitting in, in, some, uh, in, in any religious system. Religion is not meant to be a substitute for Jesus Christ. It's not meant to be a replacement for Jesus Christ. Religion is, is put into place, is structured that we might represent Jesus Christ, that we might carry out the things that he's called us to do. We might live for him corporately and reflect him corporately. In, in all reality, it's impossible for us to reflect him fully, to reflect the Godhead 
fully as individuals. So God brings us all together in, in, as a reflection of the Trinity and says all of you work together in perfect harmony, right? This is where we see the flawedness of, of, a, of a human representation of God because we can't, we, we won't work together flawlessly because of pride, because of selfishness and selfish ambitions, but we're called to do that. We're called to work together as a reflection of God. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. That's what religion or the, the church is really all about. It's, it's never meant to be a replacement for Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's easy, again, for us to come uh, to church expecting to um, find answers outside of the Lord. And we want to be careful of, of making sure that we, as a church, when people come, we point them to Jesus. That's really what our purpose is. So Jesus is a, is a better fit. Yes, he's a better fit from a salvation perspective than legalism and religion, um, but also Jesus is a better fit from a, a daily living perspective, from, from whatever struggle you're going through today, Jesus Christ is a better fit to solving that problem than religion and legalism is. And matter of fact, they, they cannot solve those things. He says that in verse number 10. And just for the sake of review, let's look at verse number 10. He says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by, all, and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. We defined last week what it means to be fitting. Why is Jesus Christ a better fit? And the idea of that is, is that fitting, it, it, it describes something that fits into the character of someone. In other words, the actions and the reference here that it was fitting that he is a reference to God the Father. In other words, Jesus Christ is a, is a perfect representation of the character of God. If you go back to chapter number one, he's actually called the express image, the exact image of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the exact image of God the Father. He, he's, a, he's a pure and perfect expression of the character of God. Romans 5 and verse 8, the Bible says that God demonstrated his love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, a perfect expression of God's love for mankind was displayed in the person and through the work of Jesus Christ. He is a perfect fit to display the character of God. There are things that are not fitting in displaying the character of God, and there are things that are. But we see in Jesus a display of God's character. To define it, I wrote down actions and attitudes that make a person's character stands, stand out or actions and attitudes that exemplify characteristic traits. Let me give you a couple of verses just to kind of give you a picture of what it means to be a better fit. 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1 the Apostle Paul says, it is actually, actually reported among you that there is sexual immorality. And of this kind, it is not even tolerated amongst pagans. In other words, this kind is not even fitting for pagans. The, the type of immorality that's being spoken of is not even uh, appropriate or, or fitting for, for the world. It was so sinful that even wicked people do, didn't involve themselves in it. Ephesians 5 and verse 3, the Bible says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, 
must not even be named among you as that which is proper for believers, and that which is fitting for believers. It ought not to be talked amongst us as, as something that is appropriate. And then in Matthew 3 and verse 15, Jesus Christ says at his baptism, Jesus answered to them, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousnesses, or all righteousness. So we get an idea of what does it mean to be fitting? It means there are certain things that fit in with our character and that those are, those are, those are expressed by our actions. And in, in God the Father's case, there are things that fit in to his character that are expressed through his actions. We look secondarily at what determines whether something is fitting, and there are two things. Number one is who is our focus, and number two is what is our goal, okay? And to describe whether something is fitting, you have to know who is the focus and what is the goal. And he says to us here um, in verse number 10, for whom, or, or that he for whom and by whom all things exist, that is, that is, that is, that is the the who of why it is fitting. It is for the glory of God. It is for his glory. It is for his honor. Ephesians 1, 1 Corinthians 1 as well. Uh, the salva salvation process is all for the glory of God. Everything about it is for the glory of God. And that is why Christ is the perfect expression of it. He is the full expression of um, God's glory in redemption. And then what is the goal the goal is to bring many sons to glory. Now, there are three things that end this uh, chapter that are what I would call a display of this being fitting. And three things that are, are fitting based upon, number one, who they are for, and number two, what they are meant to accomplish. These things don't make sense if you don't consider who they are for, and what they're meant to accomplish. Remember, the goal is to glorify God, right? And the, goal, and the purpose is to bring many sons to glory. The purpose is not, and sometimes we look at this bring many sons to glory as being a place. In other words, that he's talking about bringing many sons to heaven. And I think that there is implications there that we could consider that as being an appropriate application for that phrase. I think as well, he is also and likely referring to a state or a condition that God is bringing us to. And he talks about that when he created us, he created us and he crowned us with glory and honor. In our created state as, as man, he crowned us with glory and honor and that he's, he's restoring us into that same glory and honor or into that glory and honor. He's restoring that glory and honor in the end. So the idea of him bringing many sons to glory isn't only referring to heaven, but it's referring to this state uh, that we're going to live in, this condition spiritually. We get, we're going to get, we have glorified souls and spirits right now when we got saved. God's spirit came to live within us. He glorified us spiritually. And one day we're going to get what's called glorified bodies. He's going to glorify us externally. And we're going to be perfectly in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we not, don't only think of this as being salvation or glorious heaven because, because that doesn't, these other things don't make sense based upon that. 
sufferings and trials and tribulations and temptations don't make sense on if it's all about just getting to heaven. It's all about being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It is to be in, in, in his glory again, which one day will be completed when this body dies and we put on a new body. We are completely glorified then in Christ. But that's the journey that we're on. And that's what makes suffering make sense. That's what makes temptation and difficulty make sense because we're being changed. We're not just waiting for some, 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 the sky to open up and we'd be transferred. We're changing into the image of Christ. He tells us that we have been, we have been predestined in Romans 8. We have been predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It has been predetermined. That's the journey that we're on. So it's so important as we get into these three things that we understand that God has got us on a journey. He is bringing us into the glory that he has prepared for us and predestined for us. And one day he completes that in in, in ultimately redeeming or glorifying these, these bodies that are, that are ultimately dying. That's really the greatest victory for a Christian. <clears throat> so he talks about three things in this, um, what we would call, what I would call this morning, three um, areas that are a display of how this is fitting. And so... Oh, it printed on the back of my notes this morning. I'm thinking to myself, I have two page, I am two pages short of a of a uh, sermon. <laughs> so, that is not good. All right, but I've got the rest now, so you get to. You're like, man, I wish you would have been two pages short. I know how you guys think. All right, let's look at this together, okay? The Bible says in verse 10 and 11, he says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by all and by, and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, the reference is, is this, this is a work that God the Father is performing on Jesus Christ the Son, that he is making him perfect through, through suffering. Okay, the, the suffering is, is preparing, and then the, the word perfect there does not imply that Jesus Christ was in any way sinful. The word means that it was preparing Christ. It was in the process of, of uh, the scriptures talk about him maturing and growing in knowledge and, and growing as, as, a, as a man would grow. And, and even as a man, Jesus Christ was perfect in his humanity, but he also grew like a normal man would grow. He, he wasn't born full size, let's put it that way. He wasn't born full size mentally. He wasn't born full size intellectually. <clears throat> he wasn't born full size in any way. He went through the natural processes that we go, go through as human beings. And Jesus Christ's process that he went through to become prepared was the process that was a process of suffering. His process was a process of suffering to prepare him for the sacrifice and for glory. That was his, his earthly process was a process 
of suffering. So his suffering was fitted, fitting. Watch what he says here in verse, uh, verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, okay? So you have two different, you have two different groups of people here. And, and, it, and it, it, it has a few different um, possible interpretations, Okay, we could look at this as being God the Father, sanctifying Christ would be that he who sanctifies would be God the Father, he who is sanctified would be Jesus Christ. And that is one way of interpreting this scripture. I believe that the scripture is referring to he who sanctifies being Jesus Christ and those who are, be, those who are being sanctified being us. I believe that he's drawing us into the picture here as being this is fitting for Christ this suffering is fitting for Christ because it is, the same, it is the same tool, it is the same source, it is the same object that God is going to use to sanctify us. It is the same tool that God's going to use to, to purify us or to prepare us for, for that glory. And that glory that has been promised to us, that has been predetermined for us, He is that suffering is the same suffering that we're going to go through and, um, and obviously be complete in, in our death. The Bible says, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And again, there are two uh, possible definitions of this, which I think are, both would be appropriate. One is, and some versions even uh, interpret it, both have one father. And so you would say that God the Father is the father of Jesus Christ, and God the Father is also the father of, of us of those who are children of Abraham or those who are children of faith. The other way to interpret that would be that they both have one source being suffering. That they're both sanctified or set apart through the process of suffering, through the process of difficulty, through the process of heartache. Okay, and we'll, and we'll look at, we'll look at uh, the, the, the latter one is the one that I'm going to, to flow from this morning. I believe that suffering is the source that we're going through to sanctify us, that Jesus Christ also went through to sanctify him, to, to set him apart. So let's just look at a few thoughts here about this being displayed through his suffering. The Bible says, in Christ's suffering, he became the founder of our salvation. So the first reason why Jesus Christ's suffering was fitting is because it, it pioneered a way and that's what the word founder here means. It, it means a, a, a pioneer or someone that goes in advance. Uh, it's translated in the New Testament as captain, a pioneer, or a, a prince. And it's somebody who goes in front. It's, it's kind of a leader that, that gets out in front and, 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 and paves. Maybe that's a better word for it. Somebody who paves a way. You ever seen those big trucks and they're getting ready to, to make a road and they get these huge trucks out there and they push all the dirt out of the way and then, and then behind them there's cars that go through. You, you understand that if you're ever in Nebraska, they have that what's called snow trucks. And what snow trucks do is snow trucks get out in front of all the traffic and they push all of the snow out of the way and then behind those snow trucks is a lot of cars that are gonna follow and they're gonna go where that snow truck went so that they themselves can be safe and protected in a very dangerous and difficult situation or circumstance. That's the idea of Jesus Christ paving the way for us. His 
suffering was fitting because it paved a way for us. It established a, a, a way in which we, as we follow in his footsteps, as we walk in his ways, we can also make it through the difficulties of life. We can also make it through the challenges of life. We can also make it through the disappointments of life. We can also make it through the, the people laughing at us in life. We can make it through being, maybe not having abundance of, of, of wealth or riches. You, you watch the life of Jesus, what you see is somebody who is pioneering a way through which other Christians and other believers ought to walk. He is paving a way for us to follow in his steps. We, we are, he is our rabbi, he is our teacher, and we're to be just simply following in his footsteps. And he is, he is breaking forth everything that's in front of us. He is, he, is, he, is, he is destroying it so that we can have a path by which we go. This is why he warns us all the way back in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the idea of don't go to the right hand or the left hand, Right? Because why? Because that's not paths that he's paved. He, he's paved this path. Stay on the straight and narrow path. He's paved a way for us that we can walk. And so his, his, suffering, was, his suffering was fitting and that it, it established for us a, a way, it, it, it broke, it, it removed, if you will, all the obstacles out of the way for us to have salvation but also for us to have um, life. Not just any life, but abundant life. In John 10, it talks about the, the, um, the devil doesn't come but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I have come that they might have life. The, the Lord wants us to have life. Listen, the Lord doesn't just want us to have life, he wants us to have a peaceful life. He wants us to have a restful life. He wants us to have a joyful life. He wants us to have a loving life, right? Is, is that a reality? Is that what the Lord wants for us? Is that not Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit? Is that not the life that the Lord wants us to have? And the way that he has established for us to have that type of a life is he's paved the way for us. How many of you think Jesus went through some difficulties? Show me a verse where he complained about it. Right? How many think he was accused falsely? Show me a verse where he complained about it. It's not there. What was he doing? He was paving a way. He was paving a way for us. He was, he was removing all obstacles. This is what it means to pioneer a way. His suffering was fitting because, it, because it, it pioneered a way for us to suffer. I always find it interesting that out of all of the sins that the children of Israel in the Old Testament um, lived in, right, the one that caused the Lord the most frustration if you can say that about the Lord, was what? Was they constantly complaining? Constantly complaining about everything going on. Why? Because constantly complaining says one thing about the Lord. You know, it says that he's not good. He's not able. This is opposed to the Lord's, the Lord's desire for us. He wants us to live in peace. He wants us to live in rest. He wants us to live in confidence in what he has done and what he continues to do with us and through us. He experienced firsthand everything that we experience. And remember this, he experienced firsthand everything that you will ever experience in this life. 
And, let me say it this way, he was the one who experienced at it at its most difficult state. It's like I can say I experienced driving down the snowy road. I did not experience driving down the snowy road like the tractor did. Did I? No, the tractor experienced it at a whole different level. Jesus experienced it at a whole different level. He didn't just face temptation from demonic forces or temptation from the flesh or temptation from other things, but Jesus faced temptation from the devil himself. He paved a way for us so that we might be sanctified and set apart for his glory. That's what the word sanctified here means. It means to be set apart. It means to be made holy. This term is used in the Hebrew to describe the elements that were in the temple. They would wash and they would prepare these elements in a very, very specific way. They would prepare them for holy use. That's what it means to be sanctified. And listen, folks, that's what God wants for us. God wants to set us apart for holy use. He wants to sanctify us. But it only happens as we follow in his footsteps and walk the path that he has already paved for us. Listen to these verses. John 17 and verse number 19. The Bible says, and for their sake, I consecrate myself. The word consecrate is the same word in the Greek for sanctify. As a matter of fact, it's, it's translated at the end of this verse as sanctified. He says, and for their sake, I sanctified myself so that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus Christ paved the way so that we might follow in his steps. We might experience what he experienced. We might go through what he went through in the same way that he went through it. Hebrews 12 and verse 2, the Bible says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then in your own time, Ephesians 2 verses 13 through 19, the Bible says that Jesus Christ broke down all the barriers. He paved a way through which and by which we can access God the Father. This is why the veil, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, the veil was rent in two. It was a picture that we now have access to God. Why do we have access to God? Because Jesus made it possible. It's the only reason why we have access to God. It has nothing to do with us at all and everything to do with Jesus Christ. Therefore, we cannot boast, but we who boast, 1 Corinthians 10, we boast in the Lord. Anything and everything that we accomplish in this life, we don't boast in ourselves because it's almost like, man, we, we, we get, we, we driven, we've driven behind the truck the whole way, right, with the big snow, snow plow, and we get home and we're like, man, I'm such a great driver, right? And that's how we live our lives. Here, Jesus is out in front with this huge truck plowing through everything so that we can get home safely, and when we get home, we want to just glorify ourselves. It's not about us. Thank God for that big truck in front of me, paving the way for me to do anything good. When Jesus says this to his disciples over and over again, he's like, without me, you can't do anything. Is that true? But with me, you can do everything. It's a great truth. 
If we can get a hold of it, we walk through life behind this huge plowing truck and we're just so trusting in that truck, we're so dependent on that truck and we're so thankful for that truck, we forget about our ability to drive. We just follow the truck. So he pioneers away. His suffering is fitting because it pioneers away. Number two, he says this in verse number 11, for he who sanctifies, this is all under his suffering was fitted, fitting, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to be called their brothers. Okay? This is a a significant statement because what he's doing is, and this is the second point, he is forming a brotherhood with us. Jesus Christ is forming a brotherhood with believers. He says, he talks about the idea of not being ashamed to to call them brothers. And the idea is, the idea is, is as he goes through life and he, he paves this way and he goes through difficulty and he goes through suffering, that as those who are following him face those same difficulties or face similar difficulties in suffering, they create a certain bond with the one who suffered first. A certain connection, right? How many, how many of you can understand it from the perspective of like a soldier being out there in war and they're out there fighting and they're on the same team and they're battling for the same purposes and they're, they're keeping each other safe and they're doing all of these things, that there's a certain bond there. That that same bond doesn't exist when they come home from war and they talk about people who's, who, who are sitting in their, in their comfortable chairs. There's not a bond there, is there? There's a bond between Jesus Christ and those who suffer with him. That's why Jesus says, those who suffer with me will also reign with me. There's a brotherhood that's being developed through the suffering that you go through in life. It's a brotherhood with Jesus. You're gonna get to heaven and you're gonna sit down with Jesus and you're gonna talk with him about all of the things that you were victorious over because he was with you. You're going to have a special relationship, a special bond that came, a special brotherhood that comes through the difficulties that we face in life. We often are, it's difficult to see these things God's developing in our lives when we're in the middle of suffering to to the point where we appreciate those things as being developing a relationship with Christ. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. If you, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Philippians. He, he describes it in, in the book of Philippians fairly well. Philippians chapter number three. Here's what he says in verse seven. Whatever gain I had, I, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Would you say that knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord, is there is nothing that surpasses that? Would you guys say that this morning? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul says about that. He says, For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness that comes by the law, Okay, by that whole rules and regulations system, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. Remember he said up here, he's like, there's nothing more, than, there's nothing more important or valuable than knowing Jesus. Well, here he says it, that I may know him and the power of his 
resurrection. What the Apostle Paul was saying is, is that I want to experience the power of Christ's resurrection in my daily life. The strength by which Christ rose from the dead to be experienced in my daily walk. I think for some of us, we don't even realize that that's a possibility. We don't even see that as a reality that we can actually walk in the power of the resurrection of Christ, which is the power that lives within us. Paul says to know Christ is to know the power of his resurrection. Yes, that is salvation, but that is more than salvation. That is victory over temptation. That is victory over sin. That is victory over anger. That is victory over bitterness and wrath and all of these things. That's the power of the resurrection of Christ. When you walk away from a temptation, it's not because you are powerful. It is because he is powerful. Do we want to know Christ in that way? Do we, do we want to know the power of his resurrection? Because listen, you will never know the power of his resurrection without the presence of suffering. It is impossible to know the power of Christ's resurrection without the presence of something difficult. But here's what Paul says. I want to know him. I want to know him intimately. I want to know him real. And how do I know him? By the power of his resurrection. He doesn't only stop there, but the second phrase is equally significant and I want to share in his suffering. In the uh, King James Version, it, it says it this way, I want to fellowship in his suffering. The word literally means to fellowship, that there's a fellowship that's created, just like he says in Hebrews chapter number two, there's a brotherhood, there's a fellowship, there's a union, there's something unique about those who learn to suffer in the power of Christ. There's something special about their walk with the Lord, their communion with God, their knowledge of God. There's something unique about it. And Paul, Paul desired it. He wanted to have that knowledge of God. It wasn't, enough, it wasn't enough for Paul just to have this intellectual ascent to who God was. Paul wanted to feel and know what Jesus went through. What a heart to desire to know Christ so much that you want to walk with him through his suffering. There's no greater brotherhood that can be developed or formed without walking with Jesus through difficulty. And, and yes, we look forward to that difficulty being removed, but in this life, it's probably not gonna be removed. Or if it is, it will be removed by the power of Christ. fellowship in his suffering, to commune with him in suffering, to walk with him in suffering. I don't, I don't know if you're like me. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. <laughs> you're probably glad if you're not, but maybe you're like me in this way. I get closer to the Lord when I go through difficulty than I do when I go through good things. The hardships of life drive me to my knees. The hardships of my life drive me to prayer. The hardships of my life drive me to, to um, dependence. Especially when those hardships get so big that I can't control them anymore. It's easy, you know, when you can still control them, you can still kind of put them in your little box and make them look all pretty, right? And we, often we live there too. But it's real when you can't control them anymore. And you say, God, 
unless you do something here, I can't have, I can't do it. You know what, you just created a, a level of fellowship with God that you maybe never had before. The fellowship of his suffering, it, it forms a brotherhood. His suffering was fitting, number one, because it pioneered a way. Number two, because it formed a brotherhood, or it forms, it's constantly forming a brotherhood, a relationship, an intimacy with Christ that is not possible unless we have this type of suffering, unless we go through these difficulties. Colossians 1.24 says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. Again, we see that idea of fellowshipping. His suffering was fitting because it pioneered a way, it formed a brotherhood, and then lastly this morning, it developed a pattern. It laid for us a pattern. If you, if you look with me back at our text, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna end here this morning. We're, we're not gonna go any further and give you a few thoughts on this and, and we'll be done. Watch what he says here. He says, to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing of your praise. And what we can see here is that Jesus Christ is described as being in the midst of his brothers and praising God. And praising God in the midst of those difficulty. And what he's, he's, he's established, establishing for us is that in the midst of our difficulties, we should have an attitude of praise. An attitude of praise towards God. In this communion, in the midst of the crucifixion or the cross, in the midst of the guarded experience, in the midst of the of the temptation in the wilderness, in the midst of those things, our attitude should be praise towards God. And here's what he describes it as. He says, in the midst of my brothers. In other words, what Jesus is describing is this. In the midst of our sufferings, people are watching. In the midst of our difficulties, people are watching. Matter of fact, most churches are defined by the community around them by how they responded in difficult situations. True? People are watching. People are watching to see how we respond in difficulty. He says, first of all, praising God. This comes as a direct quote from Psalm 22 and verse 22, which is the crucifixion psalm. He says, in the midst of my crucifixion, in the midst of my cross bearing, Jesus says, I will praise God. We, we must remember this, that Jesus Christ bore a cross and then Jesus Christ called us to bear a cross. Matter of fact, he says, if you want to be my disciples, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. to have an attitude of praise. In Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas in prison. They're in shackles, they're bound, they're not going to get out. What are they doing? They're singing and praising God. An earthquake comes and all the doors open and the prison guard gets the sword out because he, he assumes that all of the prisoners have escaped and he goes to pierce himself or to kill himself knowing that him killing himself would be better than the Roman soldiers killing him. And guess what they say? Don't do that to yourself. No one has left. That's the miracle of that story. Not just Paul and Silas were still there, but everyone was still there. Because praising God in the midst of your storms won't just affect your life. It will affect all of the people's lives around you. 
There is something unique about two guys sitting in stocks and bonds singing praises to God. And it's so unique that I'm willing to stay in prison when all of my chains are loosed and the doors are open. That's the power of our witness. That's the power of our testimony. And Jesus Christ established that pattern for us. Listen, there was no one who was more deserving of complaining and murmuring through their difficulty. No one but Jesus. They lied about him. They said things about him that were impossible to be true. They reviled him. They spit upon him. Listen, they sp- no, I mean, that's, that's like the worst of the worst, right? How many of you would want to be spit upon? That's like the lowest of the low. They spit upon him. He is the son of God. He does nothing in response. You know why? He knows people are watching. Jesus Christ wasn't just or he wasn't living for himself. He was living for others. He developed a pattern. He says, in the midst of all this, in the midst of my brothers, I will praise the Lord. He goes on in verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. In the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, where ought our trust to be? It ought to be in no one else than the Lord himself. Psalm 56 and verse three, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. I have to find my, my notes back here again. I'm just gonna leave them. The last thing he says in this text is, behold, I and my children, God has given me. This is a wonderful phrase. Of, it's a phrase of family. It's a, fa- it's a phrase of standing there with your family. It's like Jesus is saying, look at me and my family. In the midst of, in the midst, listen, in the midst of our difficulties, to be able to say with our church family, to be able to say with our brothers and sisters in Christ, look, behold, my church family. We're together, we're united, we're in harmony, we're serving Jesus. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, there's pain and suffering that goes along with it, but listen, look, my family. That's what Jesus says here in this one little simple phrase, behold. And it's almost like he's saying it to God the Father. He's almost expressing, look, Lord, look at what I've accomplished. And Lord, God, might we be a place, might we be a people of God that can look to heaven and say, look at us, Lord. Look at what you're doing through us. Look at what you're doing in us. And may all the glory go to him. Listen, Jesus Christ's suffering is fitting. It is perfectly fitting to glorify God, number one, and to bring many sons to glory because he paved a way for us. He gave us a path that we could go to follow in his steps. He leaves us an example of how we should live and he creates a union with us, a communion with us that is so powerful, but it only comes through suffering. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you, Lord God, for the things that you've done to bring us to yourself, the life that you live as a way to glorify the Father and as the example that you've given us as well to live in such a way to glorify the Father. 
We're mindful, Lord, of the challenges that we're going to face in this life. But Lord, make us a people that are not living for ourselves. That we're not living for selfish gain. We're not living to be elevated. But Lord, we're living to be humble. We're living to say to the world around us, look at Jesus and look at his family. Look what he's accomplished. Lord, help us to, 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 to grasp that reality. Change us for your glory and by your grace. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. 